Genesis chapter 44. Just kind of a quick uh, background, a little bit of background to get you caught up as to where we are. Um, and and I want to do this very quickly, but I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 1, and I want to get you all the way to chapter 44. So you ready for that? It's going to go real quick, though, so you've got to listen fast, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made everything, and he also made the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, who, by the way, were real, literal people. There was a real man named Adam, a real woman named Eve, the first man, the first woman. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And, and things went haywire in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned against God. There was one tree that God told them not to eat the fruit of, and that one tree they ate the fruit from. Uh, They were tempted by Satan, but they ate the fruit, disobeyed God, and when that happened, sin entered the world. The curse of sin came into the created order. They They were separated from God, and the created order was cursed by God because of their sin. And everyone that was born as a descendant of Adam and Eve, was born with a sin nature, a polluted heart. That's why we all sin, because we all have sin natures, right? Uh, that, I don't have to convince you of that. Uh, we all sin because we all are born with this corrupted heart. And we see in the book of Genesis the effects of the corruption. As a matter of fact, things get so bad, man, mankind gets so evil, uh, fighting and violence and immorality, that God decides to wipe out everyone on the face of the earth with a great flood and start over with a righteous man named Noah and his family. And so we see, starting there in uh, Genesis chapter 6, and you go into 7 and 8 and 9, you see the account of the flood. God destroys the earth. Every creature that was not in the water, every other creature was destroyed. All the humans were destroyed, and God started over with Noah and his family. But guess what? The problem of sin was still there. And we see man's collective evil at the Tower of Babel, their pride. We're going to get together on this plain of Shinar, and we're going to build a great tower to make our name great. And because they were so arrogant and so self-dependent, uh, self-sufficient, did not see their need for God, God confuses them. He gives them different languages and scatters them all over the earth. And so we see that sin has has greatly affected humanity. That's Genesis chapters 1 through 11. So the question is, is there any hope? I mean, the, the sin problem's there. Is, is there any hope for sinners? Well, chapter 12, God begins to show us his plan of redemption. It starts with him appearing to a man named Abram. He says, Abram, I'm going to make you a great promise. Here it is. You ready? I'm going to give you and your wife, Sarah, a son, which was a big deal because they were beyond childbearing years. They were unable to conceive. And says, I'm going to give you a son, which was miraculous. And he said, then I'm going to give your descendants that come through your son a, a land, a promised land in which to live. And through your descendants, one day I'm going to bless the, all the peoples on the face of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. God gave Abram and Sarah a son named Isaac. And Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph. And we see the descendants of, of Abraham growing. And God is, is literally building a nation in the book of Genesis through or from the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. And it's remarkable to see God do this. And here's why it's remarkable. It's remarkable because the descendants of Abraham were a mess dysfunction after dysfunction upon dysfunction on top of dysfunction. I mean, their, their family was a mess, and yet God is still faithful, and God still has a plan. And even though 
he, the, the, we see the faithlessness of the people. God is still preserving them, protecting them, watching over them, building them, so that one day through these descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, he could send a Messiah who will bless all the peoples of the earth because he will die for their sins. And so God is working out in the second half of Genesis chapters 12 through 50, he's working out his plan of redemption through the descendants of Abraham. So the the second half of Genesis is just really a study in the the patriarchs, the the family of Abraham. And we see how their lives unfold. And it gets really interesting uh, uh, as we work through uh, Genesis. We saw that Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had uh, Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons through two wives, Rachel and Leah, and their uh, female servants. He had a total of 12 sons, but he, he showed favoritism to one particular son named Joseph. As a matter of fact, he liked Joseph so much, he made him a special coat of many colors. And Joseph would come around the other brothers with his coat of many colors, and, uh, and of course they were jealous. That's what favoritism does in a family. It creates jealousy and dissension. And then... Joseph started telling them about some dreams he was having. He said, listen, I was having this dream about my brothers bowing down to me one day. And they think, oh, you think you're something, Joseph. You think we're going to bow down to you one day. I tell you what, we're going to kill you. So they planned to kill Joseph, but at the last minute they decide not to. Reuben talks them out of it, but they, they see a, a, a traveling band of, of merchants coming by, and they sell him as a slave to these merchants. And they take him away, and they say, we're done with Joseph. They go back and tell their dad, Jacob, hey, a wild animal killed Joseph. Sorry, he's, he's gone. And, of course, Jacob grieves over the loss of his son, but Joseph's still alive. And the brothers think, we'll never see him again, right? Well, we studied and saw that Joseph was taken to Egypt and sold as a slave into Potiphar's household. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's guard, like, kind of like the Egyptian secret service. He was the, the captain, and, and he gave Joseph control or oversight of his household. And the Bible says that God's hand was on Joseph, and so everything Joseph touched went well and was prospered and blessed by God. And so he was, was, uh, was uh, well thought of by his master Potiphar. But guess what? Potiphar's wife thought Joseph was really, really handsome. And she wanted Joseph to commit the sin of adultery with her. But Joseph says, how could I do this wicked thing and sin against God? And so he says no. It makes her mad. She comes to seize him one day, just try to you know, forcefully get him to commit this, commit this indecent act. And he runs, I mean literally runs. She grabs his garment off, and so he, she's left holding his garment in her hand. And she's so upset that he would not give her what she wanted that she lies about Joseph to the other servants and says, listen, he tried to assault me, and and so he's thrown into prison. And so it's gone from bad to worse for Joseph. Sold into slavery, now he's in prison because this this wicked woman lied about him. And you think, well, that's probably the last we're going to hear from Joseph. Well, not so fast. Not so fast. In jail... And I told you I'm going quick, so I'm almost done. In jail, Pharaoh sends two of his cabinet to the same prison where Joseph was located. The, the cupbearer and the baker. They made him mad. We don't know why, but they made him mad, so he throws him in prison. And while they're there, they have dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams. He says, here's what this dream means. Here's what's going to happen as a result of your dream. And exactly what Joseph said was going to happen, happened. And... 
A couple years later, after the cupbearer had been restored to a place of prominence in Pharaoh's uh, household, Pharaoh has some dreams. The king of Egypt, he has some dreams, and no one in Egypt can tell him what the dreams mean. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer who, who, who had his dream interpreted by Joseph in prison says, Wait a minute, there was this guy in prison that told me my dream, and exactly what he said would happen, happened. Pharaoh says, well, bring him to me. So they get him cleaned up, and he comes to the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dreams. He had two of them. One dealt with uh, a, a, a skinny cow or skinny cows eating up healthy cows. The other one had uh, uh, blight, blighted uh, uh, ears of wheat, um, stalks of wheat eating up healthy stalks of wheat. And... And, and he didn't know what this meant, and Joseph said, here's what the dreams mean. There's going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt. I mean, there's going to be great abundance in our, uh, through our crops, but then after that, there's going to be seven years of great famine. So, Pharaoh, here's what you need to do. You need to appoint a wise man who will collect the excess in the seven years of plenty so there'll be food there during the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh said, this is like a great idea. You're the man. And he makes Joseph the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Well, guess what? Seven years of plenty happen, and Joseph leads in accumulating all of this wheat. It says that there was, there was so much excess, they couldn't even count how much they had. But then at the end of seven years, just like God had shown Pharaoh and Joseph had told him his dream meant at the end of seven years, there were seven years of great famine. Now, guess what? The surrounding countries were dealing with this famine, including Joseph's family. Remember the, remember the 11 brothers and his dad Jacob? They're living in an area that is affected by the famine. They need some food and they know the food is in Egypt. And so the brothers sent by their dad go to Egypt to ask for food. They come into the presence of Joseph. They have no idea that's their brother. And we see the interaction happening between Joseph and his brothers who sold him into slavery. Now, we saw last week that, that they did not know who he was, and we see them being squeezed by God till they come to a place recognizing they were wrong and they were wicked. But this week, I want to walk you through what happens next, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Turn there with me, Genesis 44. Genesis 44. That's a mouthful. We just did 43 chapters in 10 minutes, all right? Genesis 44. I want to show you, just kind of walk through your notes with me. First of all, the crisis. The crisis. His brothers um, go and get their youngest brother, Benjamin, because Joseph wanted to see him. And he said, listen, uh, again, they didn't know who he was, but he said, if, if you are really honest men, you'll go get your brother and bring him back. So they go and get their brother, bring him back to Egypt, and, uh, and he feeds them. They have this great feast together and is, is kind to them. And the brothers are thinking, everything's good. This man, this leader in Egypt is kind to us. And he's seen our brother. He knows we're the real deal. So we're going to go back home with our foods. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 44. He commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. When you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. 
When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in whose sack? Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Now, if you remember the last chapter, when the brothers go back to their father, Jacob, they say, listen, this man in Egypt, this ruler in Egypt, wants to see our youngest brother. We've got to take him back. And, and Jacob says, don't do it. If I lose my youngest son, I'll die with him. I, I can't bear losing another son. So you can't take him. But finally they talk to him. Listen, Hey, Dad, we can't get food unless we take Benjamin back with us. And Judah finally says, hey, listen, Dad, I'll, I'll, I'll stake my life on the fact that I'll bring him back. All right? I'll, I'll personally make sure that we get Benjamin back. Well, guess whose sack the cup's found in? Joseph's cup, Benjamin's. And remember what the steward said, listen, whoever's sack the cup is in will be the, the servant that stays here in Egypt. And so now there's, they know we're not going to be able to take Benjamin back with us to see Dad. And he'll die when he realizes this. So they go back to Jacob. And just kind of a quick summary of the last chapter 44. Judah, very bravely, stands up and comes to Joseph and says, Listen, if we don't take this youngest son, Benjamin, back, my dad will die. His life is tied up in the life of this, this son, and so Judah says, listen, I'll stay and be your servant. Just let Benjamin go back. So that's basically what chapter 44 is all about. So we see the crisis. They think they're not going to be able to all return back to their father. But secondly, I want you to see the big reveal. The big reveal. After Judah says, hey, keep me and send my brother back home. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, listen, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Isn't it funny how things come full circle in life? The brother they had sold into slavery and they thought was dead or far, far away is the one that holds their life in his hand. He's the second most powerful man in Egypt. He could just snap his fingers and they would cut off all of their heads instantly. I mean, he was in position to carry out revenge and retribution against his brothers who treated him so violently and callously. So you can imagine the drama of this moment when, with tears streaming down his face, Joseph says, I am Joseph. Can you imagine? I bet you could have picked their jaws up off the floor. I am Joseph. This is the big reveal. You ever watch that show, um, Extreme Home Makeover, I think is the name of it? And they go in and, and they do some really neat things. They, they rebuild someone's house or redo it and, and, and really fix up uh, homes for people that have needs or build homes for people that have needs. And at the end of the show, they have the big reveal. And they pull this big you know, RV in front of the, the place you can't see real good. And, 
and they bring the person up whose home they had been working on. And all of a sudden, they, they count to three, and the, the vehicle moves out of the way, and they, boom, there it is, the big reveal. This is the big reveal. I am Joseph. And it says they couldn't talk. They were dismayed at his presence. But third, I want you to see the reassurance. Joseph quickly reassures them in two ways. One, by pointing them to the providence of God. That's in your notes. The providence of God. Look what happens in verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep, you, uh, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but who? God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And so Joseph has this, this remarkable, healthy view of the providence of God. He's saying, yeah, you were doing your thing, but really, big picture, God was doing his thing. And God is behind all this. So, so don't, don't, don't be dismayed. God is using all this. Even your sin, even your wickedness, even your evil, even your callousness, God used it for ultimate good. So he reassures them with the providence of God. But secondly, with the promise of provision. The promise of provision. Look what it says in verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come. So he's saying, hey, listen, don't be dismayed. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring dad back, all my brothers back, all my kinfolk, and all of your holdings, and I'll put you in the land of Goshen, and I'll provide for you. Don't be dismayed. So he reassures them with the providence of God and the promise of provision. And then we see the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And this is a powerful passage. Look what it says in verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. Six times in this entire narrative about Joseph and his brothers, six times we are told Joseph weeps. He feels great emotion. You can imagine, you would too. He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So instead of retribution, revenge, his brothers getting what's coming to him, we see Joseph take the lead in reconciliation. And he hugs them and kisses them and weeps on their neck. And they begin to talk with him and, and catch up and, 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 and figure out what's going on here. We see the reconciliation of Joseph and his brothers. A remarkable passage of Scripture. Because again, Joseph had the authority to just snap his fingers and they'd all be gone. Or be thrown into prison. But then next we see the rescue. The rescue. Genesis chapter 45, 15 through 46, 27 we see that 
that Joseph's brothers go back. They get their father. They have to talk him into going. He's, he still is too good to be true that my son Joseph is still alive. And, and they, they talk him into coming back with them to Egypt. Look what it says in verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him Joseph is still alive. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. He was shocked. Because remember, he thought he's dead all these years. They told him a wild animal had killed him. For he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And then in chapter 46... Uh, verse 2, it says, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters, his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And then starting in verse 8, there's this genealogy, a list of the descendants of Israel who were going to live in Egypt. Look what it says in verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So that's the rescue. God, God orchestrates for the family of Joseph to come to Egypt so they would have famine. I mean, they would have wheat and survive the famine. They are rescued. God rescues, listen, the descendants of Abraham. Because remember, he wants to build a great nation. If they were there in, fa- in the land of famine, they would have died and perished, and no longer would there be descendants of Abraham. And then we see the reunion. The reunion between Jacob and his son, Joseph. Look what it says in verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And so he puts them in the land of Goshen, where they will prosper and grow as a family and be provided for and survive the great So, here's the story of Joseph and his brothers. The crisis, the big reveal, the reassurance, the reconciliation, the rescue, the reunion. So we just kind of just flew through that story. But it is a powerful, powerful story. Now, here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to just draw some lessons from that story. There are some definite things that you and I can learn, some implications, some application, if you will, from this story that we need to walk away from. With. So let me just show you these four things, and then we'll be through tonight. Four things, four lessons from Joseph and his brothers. And we'll have time for Q&A tonight, too. So if you have a question, as I'm talking, just jot it down in your notes, and you can ask me as soon as we're through. Number one, 
God has a plan in the midst of your pain. God has a plan in the midst of your pain. So Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers. They were about to kill him. He begged. And they sold him into slavery. Went to Egypt, was doing good work. But Potiphar's wife lied about him, thrown into prison. I mean, it just goes from bad to worse. Joseph is living with much pain as we see his narrative unfold. And yet, as we know the whole story, as we look at it from a big picture perspective, we know that God's doing something, right? God has a plan in the midst of his pain. Here's what I want you to understand. God is on his throne. And if you are his child, and you go through pain, and you will, when you go through that pain, you can know for certain that God has a plan for that pain. He's somehow going to use it for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Now, there's some things that happen in life, and you're like, I don't see how he could use that for my good. But just trust me, he will. And you may not see that good this side of heaven. But I believe when we get to heaven and we marvel at God's working in our lives and in human history, we're going to see how all the pieces fit together. I like the song by Casting Crowns. Uh, it's called uh, Already There. and It has a line that says, One day I'll stand before you and look back on the life I lived. I can't wait to enjoy the view and see how all the pieces fit. And when we get to heaven... We're going to see how all the pieces fit in our lives. How God even used the pain, the heartache, the trials, the tribulations, the disappointments. God used it for your ultimate good. Now, let me show you this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. what it says in chapter 1, verse 11. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works, watch this, all things according to the counsel of His will. So how many things does God work according to His counsel? All th- Some things? No, all things. God works all things together for His plan, the counsel of His will. Look what it says. So that, verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In other words, God works everything out according to His will, everything, all things, so that His name will be glorified in and through our lives. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? what God does. That's what God does in your life and my life. That's what He does in human history. He works all things, all things, all things according to the counsel of His will. So just know this. This is one of the great comforts of, of being a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ. That when you're going through pain, whatever it is, God has a plan for it. God has a purpose in it. And you can't always see that. We're limited. We're finite. But God is doing something. So you just have to, sometimes you just have to trust and just hold on to Him, right? You just have to hold on and hold on tight and just trust Him because we know from the Bible that's what God is doing. God has a plan in the midst of your pain. Number two, God is sovereign and in perfect control. 
even when it feels like life is spinning out of control. God is sovereign and in perfect control, even when it feels like life is spinning out of control. Do you ever think Joseph in prison had some low moments? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that Joseph felt sometimes like his life was spinning out of control? Yes. I mean, his whole world was turned upside down. He went from favored son status to slave to prisoner. And certainly he felt like he was living in, 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 in turmoil and tribulation. And yet God's doing something, isn't he? God is orchestrating everything. God is lining everything up so one day he could be the second most powerful man in Egypt and save his family and preserve the descendants of Abraham. And so even though it feels like from Joseph's perspective that things are out of control, God is perfectly in control. And that's true in your life and my life too. Even when it feels like it's out of control, it's not because God is always in control. Listen to me. I want you to hear me. This is important. God, if, let me say it like this. If God is not in control of all, he's not in control at all. By, 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 by virtue of the word sovereign, it means God is in absolute control of everything. That's what the word means. Because if he's not in absolute control of everything, then he's not sovereign. Right? He's sovereign. He's on his throne. Let me show you this. Turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Verse 1. Love this passage. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. You ever heard someone say when they see a, a crisis or catastrophe, where's God? Where's God in all of that? This tells us he's in the heavens doing exactly what he wants. He is absolutely sovereign. And, and Charles Spurgeon said that, that the sovereignty of God is a, a soft pillow that you can lay your head on at night. See, this isn't, just, this isn't just theology, doctrine talk. This, this matters, doesn't it? We can know that whatever's happening, our life is in His hands because He's in control. And we can rest well at night. It's a soft pillow knowing that God is in control. Let me tell you one reason I love this passage. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. There was a great Christian leader in the 20th century early to mid-1900s, named Dawson Trotman. And Dawson Trotman began a ministry called the Navigators. Anybody ever heard of the Navigators? They're still thriving today. It's a discipleship-focused ministry. They're on college campuses. They're uh, in the military. They're in, uh, in different nations. I mean, it's a, it's a powerful ministry. My brother and his wife were a part of it for a time. And it's just a really... Um, uh, it's, a, it's a ministry that's been used greatly by God. And Dawson Trotman was this on-fire uh, young man whose heart was just burning with passion for the Lord. He wanted to preach the gospel, wanted to make disciples, and, uh, and was just being used greatly. But as a relatively young man, Dawson Trotman was swimming in a lake, and he had an accident, and he died. He drowned. He drowned. And this great young Christian leader is gone. And they contact his wife, Lila. 
Matter of fact, there's a, a biography called Lila, and she tells this story. They contact Lila Trotman, and they said, he, He's gone. Your husband drowned. He, he's dead. You know what she said? First things out of her mouth, she quoted Psalm 115, verse 3. She said, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. So in the middle of the most intense pain you and I can imagine, she knew that God was in control. And that's a soft pillow that you and I can lay our heads on at night. Right? God is sovereign. I like what Warren Wiersbe writes. The story of Joseph and his brothers encourages us to recognize the sovereignty of God in the affairs of life and to trust His promises no matter how dark the day may be. You can trust God with the affairs of your life. You can trust His promises no matter how dark it is. That's what it means to be a child of God. That's why it's so wonderful to know that the Lord is your shepherd, right? Because when the Lord is your shepherd and you go through the valley, even of the shadow of death, the Bible says you're not going through the valley alone. God's in control and He's with you and He's using it for your ultimate good. And that's really good news. So as you study Joseph in his life, you can't help but just be reminded of the absolute sovereignty of God, that he's the one in control, he's the one calling the shots. It seems like Joseph's life is spinning out of control, but God is firmly in control and orchestrating everything just like he wants it to work. Number three, the goal, we learned this from Joseph and his brothers, we're going to shift gears here for a second, the goal for fractured relationships should be reconciliation. The goal for fractured relationships should be reconciliation. Uh, I like westerns. And I actually got my oldest son, Cameron, watching old westerns. And he likes them more than I do now. I mean, every John Wayne movie, he wants to watch it. And, and uh, sometimes I'm like, I need a break from westerns, all right? But I love them. He loves them. But you know, there's something about a western... You know, when the bad guys run, ride into town and, and, you know, they do their worst. And, and at the end of the movie, you know, the good guys track them down or whatever. And they have that face off and the good guys get them at the end, right? It just feels good, doesn't it? It feels good when you see the bad guys get what they deserve, get what was coming to them. It just feels good. You like to see John Wayne or whoever do their thing, right? It feels good. That's why I like those movies. But in God's economy... Revenge is not to be part of our equation. In God's economy, we are to seek to reconcile with people who have mistreated us or harmed us. Reconciliation is the goal, not revenge. Now, revenge is natural. It's a natural, sinful urge. Hey, I want to get them back. Forgiveness and reconciliation is supernatural. To truly forgive someone, to truly reconcile, you need God's help. You really do. And so, the goal for fractured relationships should be reconciliation. Let me show you what Jesus says. Turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. I'm about to start meddling, so just get ready. Luke chapter 17. I just wanted you to know it was coming. Luke chapter 17, verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. Verse 3. 
Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. He's talking to his disciples. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, what? Forgive him. You say, well, hey, I'll forgive him once. But after that, hey, I'm done. Or, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Anybody ever said that? You ready? That's okay. I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Jesus keeps talking here. And he starts meddling. Look what he says. If he sins against you, how many times? Seven times in the day. And turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. He told Peter... Forgive 70 times 7. Do the math, that's 490 times, right? And guess what? If you can get to 490, I bet you can go to 491. Jesus is using hyperbole there to say, you just keep on forgiving. You just keep on forgiving. And this is revolutionary talk. This, This was a sign of weakness in the Roman Empire. That you didn't stand up for your rights and, and, and seek retribution and revenge. This was a sign of weakness. And Jesus is saying, listen, seek reconciliation. Rebuke them. If they ask for forgiveness, forgive them. So you can be reconciled to them. The goal for fractured relationships should be reconciliation. We see Joseph and his brothers reconcile. Joseph could have sought revenge, he didn't. And so this certainly has application in the family, doesn't it? Certainly has application in the family. In, in, in marriages, um, with parents, with, with siblings, with, with cousins. Listen, I, I've been doing this for a while now, and I've seen families get all out of sorts when a loved one passes away. And they start fussing and fighting about their stuff, and I've seen families that stop talking to each other over that kind of stuff. My grandmother, I'll tell you this story. My, my grandmother is, uh, she, she was Italian. She's passed away now, but she was Italian. Matter of fact, her parents came uh, through Ellis Island. They came from Sicily and are on the Ellis Island, uh, you know, registry. And my grandmother uh, grew up in Queens, New York. She didn't speak English until she was six years old. I mean, this is an Italian family. So, Ed, why, where'd the Humphreys come in? Well, she married a Georgia farm boy who was in the military, and he was in New York and met her, and they got married. That's where the Humphreys comes in. But... Uh, my grandma grew up in an Italian family, and, and they, were, they were, how shall I say this? They were passionate. Passionate. And uh, my grandma, you always knew where she stood, all right? I mean, you knew exactly where she stood. And, and I remember this kind of a legendary story. I never asked grandma about it because I was afraid to. Uh, but, but I heard this story that she and her sister had a fallen out after her mother's funeral. It was something to do with their mother, one of their mother's hats. That's all I know. Some crazy something. They'd have fallen out. Listen, they never spoke again. I mean, talking about a grudge. All right. And, I, and you look back and they say, how sad is that? Isn't it sad? I mean, think about the relationship they could have had through all of those years. And we all have that tendency to just hold on to hurt and hold on to grudges and, and even if you say you've forgiven someone, you can still kind of harbor, can't you? You still kind of, yeah, I forgive you, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep you at arm's length. I'm not gonna, it's not going to go back like to, to the way things were. I'll forgive, but I won't forget. That's not true reconciliation. We see here that Joseph and his brothers 
reconcile. And, you know, his brothers weren't convinced. We're going to see at the end of the book that after their father dies, after Jacob dies, they think, okay, now that dad's gone, now Joseph's going to get his revenge. And he has to reassure them once again, hey, I'm not getting revenge. I, I want to reconcile. I want to be your brother. This is an amazing story of reconciliation. How can we study this and not want to reconcile with, with relations in, in our family, uh, friends, you know, coworkers, church members? We can go on and on and on at the application of this idea that we need to reconcile when we experience fractured relationships. And someone might just say, well, why? Well, number one, God told us to. Number two, it glorifies God when we do it because it's supernatural, right? Glorifies God. Number four, fourth thing, lessons from Joseph and his brothers. God has a plan in the midst of your pain. God is sovereign and in perfect control. Even when it feels like life is spinning out of control, the goal for fractured relationships should be reconciliation. But fourth and last, it's important to keep the big picture in mind. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 46. When God's reassuring Jacob, telling him he needs to go to Egypt, he reminds Jacob of the big picture. Look what he says to Jacob in Genesis 46 verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great, what? Nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So what he's doing here is God is reminding Jacob of the big picture. Remember, I'm building a nation, Jacob. It's not just about you and your, and your sons. It's bigger than that. I'm building through Abraham's descendants a nation. And I'm going to provide for them and protect them in Egypt. I'm going to go down there with them to make sure that they're preserved. And then I'm going to bring them up, up out of there again. I'm going to bring them back to the promised land. We call that the Exodus. We'll get to that later on. And so we see here that God is reminding Jacob of the big picture. Remember what I'm doing. It's, it's, it's a lot bigger than just you, Jacob. I'm building a Nation, And we need to always remember, listen, we go through our, our lives, we need to always remember that there's something bigger going on, isn't there? And God wants to use us as a part of the, the big plan of redemption that He is working out. I wrote this down. It's so easy to get caught up in the mess and the mundane and forget that God is at work doing something glorious in the world. Sometimes we can get so caught up in our little corner of life that we forget that God is doing something in the world, right? He's, he's, he's bringing the nations to himself. He's saving folks. He's building his church so that one day, when it's all said and done, and the dust settles on human history, his name alone will get all of the glory. That's what God's doing right now in human history. And he invites you and me to be a part of it. So we can just play in our little corner over here and do our own little thing, or we can be a part of the big picture. Remember that God is doing something much bigger than our own individual lives. And this helps you when you're going through difficulty. As a matter of fact, turn to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 
Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Aren't you glad about that? So the context of the psalm is trouble. Verse 2, therefore we will not fear that the earth gives way, that the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. He's saying there, even if the world turns upside down, I know that God is a present help. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now look at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. So when you're going through difficulty, remember God's in control. He's sovereign. It's a soft pillow to lay your head on at night. And be still and know that you can trust Him. Be still and know that He is working. Be still and know that He is God. And isn't it interesting how in this passage... He reminds the psalmist of the big picture. Look what it says. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So be still and know that he is God. And be still and understand that God is doing something in human history. He is is exalting his self, his great name among the nations as the gospel goes forth. Alan Ross says it like this, In all ages, God's people are constantly learning and being amazed at how God works to bring about His promises, at the same time developing faith in His people. And so it's important to keep the big picture in mind. And so there are some definite lessons that you and I can draw from Joseph and the interaction with his brothers. I hope when you read this passage from here on out, you will be encouraged at the activity of God, the fingerprints of God that are all over this story. And listen to me. If you look at your life with eyes of faith, you'll see the fingerprints of God everywhere as well. Because He's working in your life. He's working in human history. He's calling the shots. He's in control. Be still and know that He is God.